Welcome to The World Below, The War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the adventure, the intrigue, and the magic of a land that lies beneath the celestial battle between gods and demons, a clash that has gone on since time immemorial. I'm your guide, your interlocutor, and your host, Michael Pryor. Welcome everyone to episode 20 of the World Below the War in the Heavens podcast, the 10th and last of season 2. This one is all about King Haldan I of Anarchist, known as Haldan the Sleepwalker. This last episode of season 2 is a very special one. As in the last episode of the previous season, I'm lucky enough to have a special guest with me, someone who's an out-and-out expert in the subject. So instead of me trying to cobble together primary and secondary sources into some sort of coherent and hopefully entertaining narrative, I can simply ask the questions that need answers and get them from someone who knows what she's talking about. This is a special bumper episode, chock full of interest, so strap in and hold on. First up, the outline. Haldon was born in 294 and is crowned in 335, age 41. He reigns until 339 and dies aged 46. He had three children and he earned his unflattering nickname because of the way he walked into disaster and steered Anarchist into a nightmare. If you can have a sleepwalking steersman. One thing is clear though, it's the end of the foundation era of Anarchist, however you put it. To try to help me sort out this messiness, my special guest for this episode is Dr Honoria Tring, Chair of Otherworldly Studies at Moriarty University. She's an expert in this early era of Anarchistian history, and especially this end of the foundation period. She's written a number of books this time, including The Rise of the Karenite Heresy, Varfina I and Her Bloody Reign, and Why a Duck? the role of domestic poultry in the Anarchistian Hypergeum. Dr. Tring, welcome. Greetings, Michael. I'm looking forward to this. It's a step outside my usual sort of thing. Appearing on a podcast, I'll be the envy of my colleagues. I'm really glad you're on board because I found it difficult to get on top of this period in Anarchist. I don't blame you. It's a notoriously untidy time for the Anarchistians, and it comes after a century or so that wasn't exactly untroubled in terms of governance. Really, things were barely holding together like a scarecrow made of tissue paper, likely to fall apart at any minute. Nice one. Look, I've done my best with the Varfanites, so Queen Varfina and her children, and then the way the crown bounced around the family through Hotch, Cindy the second, and Iona the first. But coming to Halden and the end of this foundation period, I really felt as if some true expertise was needed. I know you've called Halden the sleepwalker, as have many people writing about his reign, but I've always felt that absolves him from blame, somewhat. I think he was more actively responsible for this disruptive time in Anarchistian history than most seem to believe. Calling him a sleepwalker makes it sound like he nodded off for a while and while he was snoozing, things went to rack and ruin and he really wasn't to blame. Still, it's catchy. I suppose that's what you're after. Yeah, it looks like I might need to come up with another nickname for him, but I'll wait until the end of this episode when it looks like I'll have a better picture of him. Before we really get stuck in, can you give us some idea of the sources we have for Haldon and his reign? 
<laughs> Glad to. Getting the sources out in the open gives us a nice platform to build from. The annals, of course, are fundamental to any study of an Anarchistian monarch. Even though they're more or less highly authorised, they still give us an important contemporary detail. And then there's the complete history of Anarchist. You've come across it, I hope. I've referred to it in a couple of earlier episodes, but my understanding is it's pretty unreliable. (laughs) More than unreliable. It can be terribly misleading, (laughs) the title, for instance. Yeah, it's nothing like a complete history, is it? Some of my colleagues seem to think that the author, whoever she was, actually had good intentions and was aiming to compile a thorough account of Anarchist up until her time. But I think differently. Oh, so you're a maverick, lone wolf, out on a limb. (laughs) You make academia sound like a cage fight. (laughs) It's hardly that. Even though I imagine circumstances where such a thing would be useful. And no, I share my view of the complete history of Anarchist with my colleagues. And we think that it was meant as a joke. Not just the title either. It's full of jokes from start to finish. This is going to make me sound a bit dull. But what jokes? I didn't see any. (laughs) I suppose it's a matter of context. If you don't get the references, you don't get the humour. It's like not laughing at pop culture memes because you have no idea what they're referring to. I suppose that makes me feel a little bit better. But if the complete history of Anarchist is just one big joke, how useful is it to us? Mm. Oh, it takes a bit more work. And some of its anecdotes are a bit opaque, but it has plenty we can use, especially about Haldon's reign. Okay. Uh, Any primary sources? Well, Megra, of course, on government, does use Haldon as an example of how to ruin a monarchy. And Doromka did seem to have access to some sources we don't have anymore. So some details in his The Monarchs of Anarchist do bear study. We do have various collections of letters that give us insight into various aspects of Anarchistian life. But like so much of this early Anarchistian history, it's a jigsaw puzzle time, pulling lots of pieces together to try to get the big picture. And I hope I'm making it sound lively enough here. I'm certainly appreciating the latitude you're giving me. Yeah, well, a podcast is a different arena from a university. We're less formal here and we can be a bit more speculative at times. We don't have the same sort of quality control you might be used to in uh, university circles. Peer review? What peer review? (laughs) Exactly. I must say I'm finding it fun. Maybe I could learn something from this world and take it into academia. Why not retitle some academic papers along clickbait lines? (laughs) 12 things you won't believe about Eucantha Anarchist, maybe? Or what about what King Sand didn't want us to see? I can see you're really getting into this. Glad to be providing the opportunity, Dr Tring. Now, maybe if you take us back to the start of Haldon's reign and work through, that's probably the best way to do it. Hmm. I was wondering what sort of approach we'd take. Thematic, political, a lucky dip... But you're going for the straight chronological. Well done, you. I'm working up to something a bit more avant-garde in the future, something evolving maybe a time-reverse narrative with multiple flashbacks within flashbacks. But starting at the start and moving through each monarch's reign gives us, well, gives some of the listeners some sort of perspective, I think. If we start at the very beginning, it's a very good place to start. True. When you read, you begin with A, B, C. When you sing, you begin with... Do, re, mi. Is that what the first three notes just happen to be? 
Indeed. Go, Raimi. You know, I've learned so much doing this podcast, and that's another nugget. But let's press on. Look, I need to warn you, this podcast is notorious for its asides, and we're more than likely to go off on a tangent. But don't worry, because some of the best stuff has come up that way. I'll just say that it's wonderful to see amateurs like you getting involved in the world below the war in the heavens. Enthusiasm is an admirable thing, and if I can help, I'm only too pleased. Now, have you told everyone that Halden was the oldest child of Queen Iona, and he was born in 294? Yep, I got the facts up front. Uh, they are facts, aren't they? They're true. Mm, That's a tangent we don't really need to go off on right now, the nature of historical truth. Not unless you want to devote a couple of years of podcast to it. Let's just say that those items are well established. Right. Uh, So with only a slight dent in my confidence, I'll declare that when his mother dies in 335, he takes the throne age 41. Uh, Any problems with that? Since it looks like you've covered 13 Anaquistian monarchs before this episode, I'm sure you've come to the conclusion that successions can be troubled. Halden had four siblings after all. And no doubt they were all ambitious, which seems to be well ingrained in the Anaquist family DNA. Still, he'd been recognised as the heir by his mother, and not on her deathbed either, so the siblings had plenty of time to get used to it. And plenty of time to plot, scheme and conspire. And while they were doing that, no doubt Halden was spending a great deal of time planning to combat their plotting, scheming and conspiring, which could be the title of a new boy band album, I'd say. He must have been successful because when he was crowned, he didn't have any opposition. No outright opposition, at least, not from my reading. No joking references in The Complete History of Anarchists to rebellions and or attempts to overthrow the new king. No, but that was because Halden's planning for his succession was exemplary. Instead of waiting for any siblings to try to do away with him, he moved preemptively. Ah, poison, kidnapping, suspicious hunting accidents. Nothing so traditional. In what might have been the pinnacle of Halden's cleverness, he sought to use his siblings' inbuilt ambition and their self-interest, plus their greed to make them an offer that they couldn't refuse, which is a pop culture reference, by the way. I assume they're appropriate. Totally. We're not talking about horses' heads in beds, are we? (laughs) You might be thinking of Diamond V in the 10th century, who left the heads of crocodiles in the beds of his four main business rivals and the head of a walrus in another. He wasn't a finicky man. Sounds like that's going to be a good episode when we get to it. So what exactly did Halden do? Even before his accession to the throne, as the heir designate, Halden involved his brothers and sisters in a number of lengthy and very, very serious meetings about the future of Anarchist. In them, he suggested that it was imperative for Anarchist to expand to ensure both its safety and its continued prosperity. While this could be seen as an innocuous statement, it played nicely to his royal audience. They held the unquestioned belief that more anarchist was better for everyone. Having involved his siblings and essentially brought them on side, Halden then went on to propose that in pursuit of this goal, it was time for anarchists to start colonising the continent. Okay, do I need to be nervous about this? I mean, Colonisation hasn't exactly got a good reputation in our world. Understandably. 
But at this stage, the majority of the huge continent of the world below the war in the heavens was unpeopled, apart from the established realms and city-states. I'm sure you've mentioned Arenthia and Perrin and the like. Yeah, and Jalox and Brel and the others, as they come into the Anaquistian story. So, by moving out into the uncharted areas or unsettled areas of the continent, we're not talking about displacing people who already live there. This is colonisation of a different sort. Of course, we could talk about the impact on the environment and whether that was warranted or not, but I suspect, again, that's something for another day. I can see I have to do some more work on this uh, outward-bound aspect of the Anaquistian psyche before seeing if it would work as a podcast. I'm making notes here, listeners, the same way as I did with my last guest. I'm sorry, you've had another guest on your podcast? Uh, yep, yeah, last season, uh, Dr David Threshton. He took me through the whole business of King Sane's treasure. A fun topic, that. Threshton's a good man, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing his musical when it hits the stage. I wouldn't miss it for quids. A song, a dance, a bunch of juicy history. What's not to like? Anyway, so how did Halden's suggestion about colonies stop his siblings from trying to muscle him aside and grab the throne for themselves in the traditional Anaquistian way? This is where Halden's cleverness really shines. He pointed out how important the colonies would be to Anaquist and what a vital and possibly lucrative job it would be to head these adventures. These colony leaders would need to have impressive powers to make the colonies work too, so he proposed implementing the new title of Viceroy, a position secondary only to the monarch. I think I can see how this is going to play out. He wouldn't want ordinary people in those positions, would he? In a transparent appeal to his siblings' vanity, he'd claimed that he needed the best and the brightest. Exactly. After that, he approached each of his siblings individually, pointing out the virtues of the colony he had in mind for them. He'd extol the prospective riches such as the fertile farmlands or the stupendous forests or the dazzling ore bodies. Depending, he'd mention the outstanding trading location or the nearness to legendary heaven falls and such like. Speaking to each of his siblings on their own, he promised he'd put aside the best prospect for them alone and thus allocated each of his four locations with no dispute. It was a masterpiece of underhand negotiation. Halden's siblings, even without his conniving, they would no doubt have been looking at the map and thinking if they could make their colony a success, make it grow and expand, there could be a chance of outdoing Anaquist and the child could take over the parent. Aha! All this was done in secret, of course, as Halden let it be known that his mother wasn't very interested in such expansion. His brothers and sisters would have to wait until he was crowned before he gave them this fabulous opportunity. Of course, if they caused ructions, such a program of expansion could falter. I'm trying to think of a modern media-based parallel, but I can't come up with one at the moment. Well, never mind. And Halden's siblings bought this. They stood back and let him take the crown with no interference after that? They did, because he showed them that he'd already put a considerable amount of his own personal fortune into beginning and funding advance expeditions to the regions he'd proposed. Within six months of his coronation, all his siblings had gone from the capital, leaving him relaxed and comfortable. At least he was until the killings started. Right. Now, I've read about these killings. We'd call them assassination, surely. 
<laughs> that could be splitting hairs. But not long after Haldan became king in 335 and his brothers and sisters had scattered to the four corners of the land, people who supported Haldan, nobles and members of the advisory council mostly, began to die in horrible circumstances. It took some time before it was understood that a campaign of selective murders was taking place. Now, listeners, Dr Tring and I had a little chat about this before we started recording, and she gave me an outline of what's to follow. It gets pretty dark. But in the interest of narrative structure, I've asked her to hold back some facts until later when we'll have a big reveal. Now, I understand that this mightn't be the way professional historians operate, holding back facts and creating suspense. So I hope you're okay with this, Dr. Dream. Yeah, as you say, this isn't my normal operating mode, but I'm happy to go along with it. It'll mean some sidestepping at times, and I hope it doesn't sound too clumsy. To tell the truth, I'm appreciating the freewheeling approach we're taking here. Any chance that we could go viral? We can only hope. This podcast operates mostly on a wing and a prayer, so we'll take things as they come. Uh, Let's just say it appeared as if someone or something was responsible for this campaign of terror. Indeed. An individual or a foreign power. No one claimed responsibility, but it was obvious that more than one person was committing these murders, even though no one was ever caught. They were almost always committed at night, and even well-guarded and fortified residences were no protection. These murderers, or assassins if you prefer, were extraordinarily stealthy and effective, and it soon became clear that they were working their way up the ladder, with the individuals of more and more lofty positions continuing to come to a sticky end. But was it an individual behind all this, or was it a foreign power? No one knew. Anaquistian monarchs generally seem to be fairly aware of threats. I hesitate to use the word paranoid, but that seems to be the sort of level they operate on. Haldon was the same? It didn't take him long before he became very, very afraid. Long before anyone else, he was certain that the ultimate target of this campaign was him. When news came from the far northeast coast that his sister Rohesia had been garroted, It gave weight to his fears. She was viceroy of a colony up there. Mm. It was a prime site for harvesting prized tropical timber, as well as having an excellent access to the fisheries of the coast. It was a strategic place for a colony, and Rohesia had been the first to take up Haldon's offer. The colony staggered on for some time after her death, but without Rohesia's leadership and access to the monarch, it fell apart seven or eight years later like a hastily written second series after a much-praised debut season. Nice. I'm guessing that uh, the assassinations didn't stop there, though. A good guess. No, but in a display of masterly psychological terror, they stopped for a few months before Haldon's younger brother, Regulus, had his throat slashed while he slept. The colony he was ruling was in the central east of the continent. Near the confluence of two of the largest rivers, it was an area of outstanding fertility. Wonderful for either cropping or for grazing, but it also had substantial signs of gold seams. Regulus had set up his nascent colony almost as a military outpost, and his residence was guarded by soldiers both day and night, but someone still found their way inside and took his life. 
Wow. I mean, this is some ninja-level work going on here, isn't it? Certainly some of the more salacious writing of the time thought so. We have evidence of graffiti which looks suspiciously like tallies of nobles and royals being killed. Several nicknames were also splashed around like the Nighttime Avengers, the Slashers and the Keen Edge of the People, although that last seemed to be an attempt to start a popular movement that really had nothing to do with the killings. So the people of Anarchus were aware of what was going on? Certainly. One of the more interesting sources we have are some letters from a woman in Lowtown to her mother, in which she mentions the odds she was offering on which noble would be the next to be killed. They're fascinating for many reasons, not the least being they tell us how various aristocrats were regarded by the people in Lowtown. Wait, wait, hold on, wait a second. You're telling me that someone was running a book on who was going to be assassinated next? <laughs> yes, Anarchistians are and were enthusiastic gamblers. It's not really a surprise that something so noteworthy as serial killings among the Anarchistian upper class would attract betting. And this letter writer was a professional bookmaker or just someone offering to take bets? Well, that can be a fine line sometimes. In this case, however, the woman appears to be a professional, offering all sorts of wagering, from the boat races to staged fights to other more bizarre contests. Okay, note-making. It sounds like the history of gambling and anarchists needs its own podcast. But back to the killings. It sounds like it was an unsettling time in the city. It certainly was to Halden. The killings paralysed him in many ways. He could think of nothing other than his own protection. The regular work of the monarch in scrutinising decisions of the advisory council, initiating reforms and maintaining foreign relations all went by the wayside. Halden directed huge funding to the army, but also the palace guard, the personal contingent charged for his protection. He confined himself to the palace, and most likely to just the royal apartments, and then the throne room. His inner circle of friends and personal assistants shrank, and finally disappeared altogether as he discharged them one by one, and servants never lasted long either. And this period of paranoid terror lasted for four years until he died in 336? This was a fiendish aspect of this unseen foe. After the death of Regulus, the killings went quiet again for some time, either marking a gathering of forces or simply to make Halden and his remaining siblings sweat. Is now the time to reveal who was behind the killings? No, not yet, not yet. We can stretch this suspense a bit more, surely. Oh, very well. It's an interesting approach. I'm not sure it'd go down well in my lectures. Why not give it a try? Listeners, that's the sound of me not making a note to myself. Oh, academic burn. (laughs) Moving right along, and I'm looking at my preparation here. Regulus, Halden's brother, was killed in late 336. So what happened after that? Hmm. Halden's other siblings, his sister Tacita and his brother Farnes, must have felt as if they had targets painted on their backs. And it was reported that establishment work in their colonies ground to a halt while fortifications were built the better to protect the viceroys. Several unsuccessful attempts were made on their lives, those responsible escaping before they could be captured and questioned. But the fact that their efforts were thwarted gave them and Halden some hope that they were on top of the situation. Mm, And then? 
Alden became even more confident that he was safe when he escaped from three assassins who came out from beneath the carpet in the lilac room, a sitting room in the royal apartments, where they'd excavated the stone floor and hidden some time before. His pet dog, Beppo, smelled something and started snarling, and Haldon didn't need much warning, living in a heightened state of awareness, as it were. He ran from the room calling the guards, who stormed in, and after a brutal melee, six guards and all three assassins were dead. Mm. Did they learn anything about the assassins? No ancient Anaquistian equivalent of CSI? They were so totally anonymous, they could have come from anywhere on the continent and from any part of society. It was chilling. And no one to bargain with, no demands. Nothing. And all went quiet again. After six months, Haldon even began to express the hope that the gods had reached down and crushed whoever was responsible. He actually began to take notice of the realm. He was lucky, if you like, that forays by the wild people had died down at this time, probably because of the rumoured death of the great warlord Thales Nesh. Large bands of wild people were seen leaving their camps and streaming back toward the interior. Haldon was so heartened by this, he ordered a ceremonial arch built outside the existing west gate of the stronghold, where he was depicted as the conqueror of the wild people. (laughs) So, fake news existed in the world below the war in the heavens too. Hmm. I think you can find fake news just about everywhere when you look for it. If you think the depictions of monarchs on coins are totally realistic, I'm afraid you're deluding yourself. Anyway, Haldon was jeered at the opening of the arch with many commoners making rude noises. He didn't take it very well. But in, in some ways you could see this as a sign of things getting back to normal. Not exactly. It may have been a pause to lull people into a false sense of security, to get them thinking the terror was all over and done with. Farnies found out that it wasn't, but he didn't have much time to kick himself because he was found throttled and drowned in his own bath, a magnificent piece of ablutory hardware hauled all the way up into the mountains of the far east of the continent where his colony was establishing itself. Okay, so that couldn't have been good news for Haldon when he heard it. I mean, about Fadi's death, not not about the bath. No, certainly not. He flew into a panic, reinforced the palace guard, and even started using body doubles, which since he didn't go out at all, seems to be overdoing it somewhat. No one was going to gainsay him, though, and soon lookalikes were wandering around the palace looking nervously into corners and doorways. The trouble with this was that Haldon was both proud and vain, and the doubles he hired generally didn't look very much like him as he turned away all the good-looking candidates. Oh, Haldon, you're your own worst enemy. Apart from the horde of assassins fanatical about your death, I mean. Anyway, how was his last sibling doing, his sister Tacita? She was fairly phlegmatic. Let them come, she was reported as saying. I'll welcome them with steel. The area she'd been given to colonise was in the far west of the continent, so she may have felt as if distance was her friend. With the huge harbour at her back and the arid plains stretching for days to the east, it would have been an unprepossessing place if it weren't for the extensive beds of unusual pearl oysters, unique in their size and extraordinary rainbow colours. It was also on the mouth of a river that promised much future trade coming from the interior, 
location, 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 as they say. She didn't get much time to exploit it, though. (laughs) No. She was found with the first ever example of a scale-based murder weapon, a tiny capsule that she probably didn't even notice imbibing as it was the size of a grain of rice. When it expanded and blades plunged into her throat from the inside, though, it was quickly fatal. Yikes. I don't believe that was her last word, but you never know. So... The mystery foe got held in the end, didn't they? Indeed. After a year of almost constant paralysing fear, one day Halden expressed a desire to go hunting. After the astonishment this sudden change caused in the royal household, it was remembered how the young Halden used to love hunting, and it was hailed as a return to normality. He, however, declared he wanted to go alone, and after some dissent, which he quickly slapped down, He left the stronghold on his favourite horse with his faithful hound Beppo, equipped for the hunt, and was never seen again. He vanished? His body was never found. (laughs) Pardon my incredulity here, but the king just disappeared just like that. I mean, you lose your car keys, your wallet, but losing a monarch sounds impossible. It was a total mystery. And, as you can imagine, it caused both dismay and uproar, especially when it was discovered that his three adult children, Seltima, Ephraim and Abelard, were all killed on the same day, around about the same time that the king disappeared. Now, I may have read too many murder mysteries, but did anyone suspect Halden was behind this for some twisted reason? Faking his own death, had his children killed and then he reappears? Hmm, a nicely twisted idea there, but no. This savagery was beyond anything Halden was capable of, and indeed shocked all anarchists. So stunned was the populace that when, the next day, the band of yellow-clad soldiers rode into anarchist and demanded entry for the heir to the throne, the guards simply opened the gates of the palace. Right. Now I guess it's time for the big reveal. Who was this self-proclaimed heir to the throne? We're not talking another pretender, are we? We've had heaps of them bobbing up all over the place. True heir, pretender or usurper? There's another exercise in definition I'll leave for now. It's enough to say here that the person at the head of the band of assassins, for that's who these yellow-clad soldiers were, was a member of the royal family, an actual cousin of Halden I. She was daughter of Salus, a son of Queen Sendia II, who was Halden's grandmother, and she ushers in that terrible period in Anaquistan history we call the Nightmare Years. Oh, go on. You're dying to tell us her name, aren't you? <laughs> she was Grippina, soon to be crowned as Queen Grippina, and universally known as Grippina the Cruel. Well, hold on to your hats. Oh, listeners, I've got my hands on some sound effects and you can be sure I'll be doing them to death in future podcast episodes. Let's do that again, Dr. Drake. Tell us, who was it? Who was this person behind all the assassinations? She was Grappina, soon to be crowned as Queen Grappina and universally known as Grappina the Cruel. Here we go. I love it. 
but let's push on. So far, we've seen uh, people become monarchs of anarchists through all sorts of means, devious, nasty, violent and duplicitous. Grippina is different? Oh, yes. And not just because she came from outside the direct line of descent, but the level of her savagery was of a different magnitude altogether and it doesn't stop when she's crowned queen which should make for a terrific opening episode of Season 3. But let me sum up King Halden now, known as the Sleepwalker. I can now see that his nickname may not be totally warranted, but it's probably better than Halden the Scaredy Cat, which he might have deserved, given that for most of his reign he lived in fear. Thanks, Dr. Treen. I truly appreciate you being here. It's been an experience, Michael. And please don't forget to like and subscribe. I believe that's a customary sign-off. Oh, nice one. And that's all for episode 20 of the World Below the War in the Heavens podcast. I'm deeply grateful to Dr Honoria Tring for her patience and her expertise. She was a real professional. As I said, this was the final episode of season two of the World Below the War in the Heavens podcast. I'm going to have a break for a while and I'll get back to my other writing projects. And of course, I'll be diving into researching for Season 3. Until then, read lots of books. They make you a better human being. This has been The World Below the War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the history, culture and esoterica of the world below, a continent of magic and mystery with inhabitants who keep one eye on the sky at all times. I've been your host, Michael Pryor. If you'd like to find out more about me and my books, pop over to www.michaelpryor.com.au. Farewell.